and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host for the next hour alongside our good friends, TJ. Hello. And Drew. Howdy. If you're just finding out about this podcast, first of all, thanks for listening. We are a group of students belonging to a student faculty research group called RIT Space Exploration, or SPECS for short. On this podcast, we talk space with amateurs, astronomers, and even astronauts. You can learn more about SPECS and SPECSCAST at our website, specs.rit.edu. Today on the show, 2016 in review. It's been almost a year since we started this podcast, and a lot has happened, and we've talked about a lot. So uh, let's kind of reflect on, you know, space missions, space news, and the podcast itself. If, if you've been here since the beginning, like, thank you so much, because our first episodes were kind of pretty bad. Um, but again, we started recording in the middle of February. We had three episodes, uh, and they all came out the first week of March. And so we've been trying trying to hit, you know, one every week, uh, targeting Wednesdays uh, through the, f- the spring semester. Uh, and then we had a little summer break uh, because we were all remote. And then again in the fall semester. Um, and so, you know, it started out as at the very, very beginning, it was three people who had a really interesting dinner conversation uh, before Christmas, and we're like, well, you know, what if we just, you know, take this and record ourselves and put it on the internet and see if anyone would actually listen to us? Um, and it's actually been incredible the response we've gotten. Um, some of our episodes have had a thousand plus downloads. Which, if you had told me that us talking to anyone would have gotten that much interest, I would have just laughed at you. A, a huge shout out to um, the SpaceX Reddit community because we, when we first launched, our first episode was rocket reusability, where you know, obviously there's a huge focus on SpaceX in that episode. And from the beginning, the subscribers there have been really responsive and supportive of our show. So, And then a uh, shout out to Augie, who uh, started the show with us, uh, but then he you know, had to graduate and get a job and move on with his life. Uh, so he might be in a, a couple episodes as a guest, uh, remoting in. Uh, we do hope to have him on back again, but uh, he's off being a, a full-fledged adult. I was not there at the beginning. As you said, this was three friends initially, and those three friends were you two, so TJ and Phil and Augie. I was one of those people who started listening at the beginning, and then I joined in as a member of Specs. So I was lucky enough to contribute to this, this uh, adventure, and it's certainly been a fun year. And look forward to moving into 2017 and all the episodes we have planned for this year. Yeah, so let's let's talk about some of the events we covered, actually. One of the huge events that, that we were talking about a lot on the podcast was the IAC. And the major news item out of there was Elon Musk's announcement of the Interplanetary Transport System, along with the Raptor engines and their whole plan, SpaceX's whole plan to get to Mars. CRS-7 happened, and that kind of pushed their whole timeline back. So they, you know, lined it up with IAC, which is like that international, every space agency, every launch company coming together, um, and had this big event, which was really, you know, extended an offering to NASA, extending an offering to other companies of, like, this is our, our plan, this is what we think is going to work, and come, like, help, help us kind of do this. 
Uh, and it's going to be interesting. I'm sure we'll talk about it later this year, but the response to that from satellite developers and other mission developers when you have the potential for the system on the horizon. Um, but, you know, kind of focusing on, like, what we did, we, you know, we had this, like, in the back of our mind of, like, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, and we did a pre-episode of, like, what our p- predictions and what the, our hype was, and then after, you know, watching the announcement live and then coming back together and talking about, like, all the amazing, you know, statistics, the very, very optimistic timeline uh, and the renders and everything else was a ton of fun to experience and uh, we're glad that we were able to record that and give that out to everyone else. Yeah, we, we also discussed it a little bit on the social media after we released the episodes too. One thing that happened uh, this past year in early August that I think flew under a lot of people's radar if you're kind of the casual space enthusiast uh, was the SmallSat conference. It's a similar conference. A lot of companies and um, vendors and stuff, uh, scientists get together to talk about small satellites. So I think the definition for small satellites, anything around like one meter wide. So usually, you know, they happen to be secondary payloads on different launches or launching multiples at a time. And uh, Augie actually um, had the chance to go and basically be our field reporter for a few days, actually. A lot of interesting discussions came from that and Gwen Shotwell's keynote speech at that conference. That's one of the things that got me really, really, really excited. But it wasn't all just conference reporting that we did. As we talked about in the beginning, This started out as a collaboration of friends talking about their interests in space. And we also got the opportunity to do some awesome interviews with people in the industry. We've interviewed a lot of people, actually, including Chris freaking Hadfield. Yeah, that was definitely, I think, our highlight episode of the year was getting to sit down with him for, you know, an hour. And we got to ask our our questions about what he's done in his career and what his opinions were on the current state of space. Uh, and that was an awesome experience, and we had, so we tried to get as many, you know, different questions and opinions in that interview, and that was a super, super rewarding experience. We also had the opportunity to interview Tori Bruno, the CEO of ULA. Yeah, he's a super cool guy, really responsive on Twitter especially. Like, he, I sent him, we got that interview because I sent him, um, like, a private message. And he responded, which is crazy for a CEO to do, especially of a rocket company. One of the reasons I love that interview is because it was, you know, I think it's a really good representative episode of SpexCast. It's interesting, but it's also informative and detailed and on a technical level. We got to have a technical discussion with someone that is an expert in their field, right? So we talked about ACES and refueling in space and how that architecture might look. And we recorded it the day before the launch of OSIRIS-REx. Yeah, that was a ton of fun. Uh, and he was super knowledgeable. Uh, obviously, you know, ULA is like, they're in a much more competitive kind of mode recently. And so with Tori Bruno, you know, being super active and being super social, and that was an awesome opportunity to you know, talk with them. And then with ACES, there were, you know, a ton of technical questions I had that when I did research, I wasn't able to find answers to, but able to sit down with him for over an hour and get, you know, their whole roadmap from, you know, the first launch of Vulcan to the evolved version of ASIS, you know, going around the moon and having a full kind of Earth region refueling architecture, which might take, you know, 20 years, but that's kind of the path that they're kind of set themselves on, is really, really interesting. And as students of science, technology, engineering, we love these technical interviews, at least for from my perspective, they're the most interesting thing we do. 
And we also had the opportunity to speak with some researchers from Goddard Space Flight Center and students uh, on the Violet satellite team from Cornell University. Yeah, like this technical stuff, I agree, is is my favorite thing to do. I like these discussions, but, you know, learning something new from an expert that knows what they're talking about is just on a whole other level for me. And last but not least, uh, we've, you know, kind of built a, a pod, space podcast community, if you will. Shout out to Brendan Byrne from the Are We There Yet podcast, Jake Robbins from We Martians, and Anthony Colangelo from uh, Main Engine Cutoff. They're great guys and they have great shows and um, they've actually helped SpexCast develop and grow alongside their own podcasts. All right, so enough about SpexCast. Let's shut the door on some meta and talk about actual events that happened in 2016 from the ones that we've all heard of. We, there have some, been some new developments since we talked about them, and then other ones that are really cool, but you may have missed. Uh, SpaceX had a, a very strong beginning of the year with unfortunate event uh, towards the end. Um, but again, uh, CRS-7 um, had a, a mishap um, be- middle of 2015, and their return to flight was December um, of 2015. And not only was it a return to flight, but they landed the first orbital class booster at the landing pad, which was kind of a, a double jump ahead in their progress. And so SpaceX kind of approached 2016, you know, feeling very confident coming off of that. Uh, and they had <clears throat> the f- second launch from California, from Vandenberg, uh, which was Discover, which I actually got to go to in person, which was, it was a really fun experience. Uh, unfortunately, it was super foggy, and you couldn't actually see the rocket take off, but you could feel it, feel it in, in your body, all the cars started shaking. It was really cool. Um, but some of the highlights for SpaceX was the CRS-8 mission, where not only did they land the first barge on a drone ship, but they also uh, delivered, as part of the cargo contract, the Bigelow Expandable Activity Module, which is a really interesting technology that's had a, a long history. Um, and so having that module on the International Space Station lets uh, that technology be tested over a long period of time. And hopefully, you know, in the next few years, Bigelow will be able to scale it up to their BA-330 module, uh, which would allow humans to have a low-cost space station with the same kind of volume that the ISS has. And, you know, as we approach the ISS end of life in the next... 10 years or less, uh, it becomes kind of critical to look at that next step. And that technology is a really promising um, kind of outlook for that. Um, So yeah, so SpaceX landed, first barge landing, then they proceeded to land several more on the barge. Uh, They had a a whole collection of these that were storing at the Cape. Um, Obviously, the first... uh, the first Falcon 9 to land in Cape Canaveral was moved and put on display in Hawthorne. So that's a public, mo- well, semi-public monument that you can go to if you live in Southern California. Um, they also test-fired the JCSAT-14 core in McGregor, and they did um, almost 10 static fires full duration to prove that a, re- a landed booster could be reused as much as they can test on the ground to see what the failure points were. And so that kind of sets us up for 2017, which we'll talk to talk about of uh, the first uh, reuse of a landed booster, which is going to be really exciting. I'm just going to interject here with, 
it was so freaking cool when they landed on the barge because it's like it's I'm not going to say it's Apollo at the same level as Apollo. He, everyone remembers where they were who was alive at the time when the first steps were made on the moon, but I certainly will always remember where I was and what I was doing when we landed the first or reuse stage on a barge. That was freaking cool. Yeah, Augie and I watched that on campus, and then we we watched the barge land, and we ran across campus to go record the uh, telescope episode with Dr. Connolly. So that was a fun fun time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think most, if not all, of our listeners kind of understand this feeling as well. It just felt important. This is real now. Like this feels like progress. So if you look at the the past two or three years when they started trying to redirect the stages in flight and try to soften the water it's been a journey of multiple multiple like attempts to do this and so to have the barge out there and hit the barge and many times uh and to finally the first actual landing was on land which is kind of the harder task was incredible and super uh, exciting um but then to see how quickly things improved where they've hit the barge like dead center several times um and we looking towards 2017 have a a very positive outlook on that success rate of landing these these boosters which some people said was going to be impossible uh to go from not only probable but to likely is really cool and yeah and well spacex saw a lot of success in 2016 they also had another incident in september yeah so this was in september i think september 1st they we're doing a, a static fire, so a test before the actual launch, where they just fuel and then burn the engines on the rocket, make sure everything's working, uh, and they happen to have the payload, the Amos 6 satellite, on it. Unfortunately, there was a total failure, and the, the entire rocket, the entire launch vehicle, and the satellite were destroyed in a fire. Yeah, explosion, more like, <laughs> not just a fire. Yeah, a very rapid fire. People probably remember this, um, but SpaceX has since published their findings. They had a a large team working on figuring out what happened that include members from the FAA, the U.S. Air Force, other members of the government. And they found that the most likely cause being the composite overwrap pressure vessels, the COPVs, uh, which are the, the aluminum tanks that are covered with a carbon composite. Uh, Those probably buckled during the filling procedure, which allowed the, or during the the helium, which is put in there for tank pressure, uh, the liquid oxygen fuel potentially pooled up in those buckled sections of the COPV and probably a spark or static from either breaking carbon or friction in the carbon ignited that fuel, which could potentially have been cold enough to be solid oxygen. So highly flammable, highly reactive, and we we saw the result. It all went up in flames in a matter of seconds. The YouTuber Scott Manley does a great video explaining the situation. It's super crazy, and I'm not surprised it took this long. You know, it seems like, oh my God, there's a failure. Why are they taking forever to figure it out? Um, and like at the beginning, of the, when it just happened, there was all this 
you know, crazy rumors that, oh my God, there was a sniper on the roof that shot it. And it turns out it's this super obscure mechanical failure. A super edge case of physics is what it is as well. <clears throat> like you're, when you're pushing, you know, these engineered devices to the limit, you start running into these edge cases of, okay, well, you know, we have this liquid oxygen. What if we, you know, get it so cold and then compress it that it becomes solid oxygen? And now we have a new material that interacts with our existing carbon composite in a completely different way, uh, and that causes a huge issue. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, they had done it in tests and it hadn't been an issue so far. Uh, but that one time, the conditions, you know, the external conditions, the internal conditions, all lined up to make this an issue. And uh, unfortunately, you know, it lost the rocket, you blew up the launch pad and the payload, um, which is kind of the trifecta of, of, of most damaging failure for a, a launch company. Um, so we're glad that they're, they f figured out the problem, they've engineered temporary solution and they're working on a permanent solution and they've actually returned to flight which is good to see there was a conspiracy theory that someone had shot the like sniper had shot the tank but they actually and mcgregor it did a test where they built a mock second stage and have a guy shoot the tank and uh, they actually found that their like sensor readings were like almost identical so elon musk he was doing an interview or a speech at the um, nro it's like, yeah, like, you know, we, we had someone out there, like, shoot it, and, like, we hope it's not a sniper, but we'll try to figure out the actual, like, most likely cause. Um, when all of that has since been stroked from the internet, because the guy who leaked it was not supposed to leak it, and hopefully he still has a job. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the solutions that they've implemented, uh, the short-term one that TJ mentioned, is they're returning to an older configuration of how they used to fill the tanks. So they'll be using helium at a higher temperature, so it won't potentially create solid oxygen. Also, the the long-term goal is to prevent these COPVs from buckling in any case. So there should be no pooling of liquid oxygen in the future, and hopefully these implementations will fix the issue for good. Yeah, I'm sure everyone at SpaceX is you know hard at work figuring this stuff out. I mean, this is my favorite mission of 2016. Uh, so I, I, I gush about this. This Juno, it's a space probe that's going by Jupiter, right? Um, and it's actually the furthest solar-powered spacecraft from Earth. So you might have seen on the internet, you know, these solar panels are the size of tennis courts. And that's because when you send something to Jupiter, um, it's way further from the sun than Earth is. So in order to get as much electricity as you need, you have to have huge solar panels. And the probes that have gone by Jupiter in the past and Saturn and things like New Horizons that went by Pluto, they're not powered by solar panels because there's not enough sunlight out there. So this is important just on a technical level from that side. Um, but also, it's taking pictures of Jupiter, and I love Jupiter. <laughs> um, so Juno, yeah, it, it's going in a polar orbit. So Past missions have gone by, you know, on the side, equatorial, and taken pictures of Jupiter. For the first time, uh, we're seeing pictures of Jupiter's poles. And if you've seen them online, they're it's super cool with the clouds and stuff. Um, 
And a really interesting thing about this camera that's taking those pictures is that um, NASA and the Southwest Research Institute, um, who are the principal investigators on this mission, have opened up um, this camera called JunoCam to the public. So amateur astronomers can go and say, like, you know, here's my re- here are my reasons for wanting to look at this latitude of Jupiter. And I think it would be great science uh, for these reasons. And NASA can, you know, read those uh, requests and say, hey, this citizen um, who's just a regular guy has a really good idea. Let's do that. So they're kind of incorporating the public and giving them a role in this really, really exciting mission. Um, in terms of news, though, like I, one of the things that I thought was cool, like we do podcasts, right? I like sound as Juno entered Jupiter's sphere of influence back in June, there was this cool sound bite that was like really quiet. And then all of a sudden, there's a point where it goes. And that's because. It's the kind where we will insert that sound bite. Yeah, we can, we can do that. Yeah. So that right there is called the bow shock. And reading here from a NASA publication that went out right when this happened. The bow shock is where the supersonic solar wind is heated and slowed by Jupiter's magnetosphere. Is it analogous to a sonic boom on Earth? So it's kind of cool because this is a measurement of the electric field mapped to sound waves that we can hear. But like we mentioned with with SpaceX, it wasn't all, it was 100% success. There there were some failures as well. So um, when Juno approached Jupiter, it had to make a maneuver. And that maneuver would would have ideally put it in orbit so it would pass close by to the planet every two weeks or so. Um, unfortunately, the valves related to the propulsion system were sticky or something like that. So the precision to make that burn wasn't quite ideal. So um, now we've been getting pictures of close-ups from Jupiter about every couple months instead of every couple weeks. Uh, so scientists are still able to do really good science. Um, but it's not as quick of a turnaround as we would have hoped. But every couple months, you know, stay tuned um, on Twitter and on uh, NASA's website to look out for pictures, close-ups from Jupiter, because they're really freaking awesome. Okay, that's my spiel. I'm done. Yeah, and uh, one of our uh, very interesting guests and something that's kind of personal to us at RIT was the gravitational waves discovery this year. The Center for Computational Relativity and Gravitation here at RIT uh, actually created the mathematical and computer models that the LIGO team compared their uh, inferometer data to. And so the RIT team actually got co-credit on the discovery of gravitational waves. Well, we, we sat down with uh, Brennan Ireland and Monica Rizzo, who are um, two uh, students that do research with the CCRG. And that that's an amazing episode. That's one of my favorites. It's kind of weird to think about gravitational waves and gravity warps space. Um, and that's how things move, right? And when those masses that are warping space accelerate, they make ripples in the space time, which is mind boggling to begin with, but it was described by Einstein's equations. And, you know, he thought it was just some artifact, some math mumbo jumbo that just happened to be there. But it turns out that using the supercomputers at RIT, they could say, well, what if two black holes collided? What if they, and when they collide, they spin around really fast and even accelerate 
to about half the speed of light. So they're accelerating really fast and they're black holes that are massive, like 30 solar masses. And those, you know, would make significant waves. And even then, significant is one ten thousandth the width of a proton. That's the significance we're talking about. And um, it's actually detected by LIGO, which is amazing. But people are referring to gravitational wave astronomy as a new form of astronomy, not only because it is different than observing light, but because we can, it's a totally different way of measuring things, right? So when the CCRG simulates things, they can say, okay, if these two things collide, if these two black holes or neutron stars, or if this star explodes, what would those waves look like? And then we can monitor LIGO and see, okay, we got these waves. Now let's compare them to what the simulation showed. And so it's kind of like backtracking, you know, ma matching the measurements to what they probably came from. And that's where we are right now. Um, but even still, it's, it's a direct observation of a black hole. And by definition, black holes... We can't observe them with light because all the light that would come out of them like can't escape. So we can't observe them with light. And so gravitational wave astronomy is the only way to directly observe black holes, which <laughs> I geek out about this stuff a lot, and I think it shows. Um, but it, it'll be really exciting in 2017 for sure um, to watch what the LIGO team is observing um, and also keep track of a mission called LISA, which is basically going to be LIGO in space. Really, really exciting. Another exciting uh, event in space news in 2016 was the successful launch and relaunch of the New Shepard test vehicle by Blue Origin. Uh, they were able to um, launch their booster uh, as well as their capsule multiple times, uh, each successfully landing. And their last test was their most strenuous, um, where they didn't expect the booster to survive. They did a, a last second uh, engine burn and we're able to recover it safely. So both the capsule and the booster are actually going to a museum for, uh, to be on display as a piece of space history. Uh, but another uh, exciting bit of news out of Blue Origin was the announcement of New Glenn. So the uh, New Shepard spacecraft uses the BE-3 Hydrolox engine. So that's a uh, rather small engine uh, that's used for the first stage of New Shepard. Um, but they've always had plans for a very big brother rocket to New Shepard. Uh, so going with their astronaut uh, naming system, there's the New Glenn. Uh, the New Glenn is a, a two or three stage reusable rocket uh, powered by BE-4 uh, Methalox engines uh, on the first and second stage. And the three stage version uses the BE-3 Hydrolox as a third pusher stage. So these are going to be completely reusable orbital class uh, boosters. Uh, so bringing their technological uh, ability and goals up to what SpaceX has now. Um, so those are really exciting to see another reusable um, launch vehicle on the, the, the docket right now. Because we have SpaceX uh, current experiments. We have Vulcan with ACES as a reusable second stage um, with their reusable engine thing that I forgot the name of. Smart Reuse, yes. Yeah, so uh, SpaceX has their reusable uh, Falcon 9. Um, 
ULA is producing Vulcan with smart reuse for the first stage engines and Asus as a reusable second stage. Now New Glenn uh, has their competitor rocket. Uh, as well as part of this announcement, there was talk of the building the factory in Florida. Um, when, if you remember to our interview with Brendan Byrne, uh, who reports on the Space Coast, Florida is trying to attract these new space companies to design and manufacture in the state. Uh, because they have such easy access to launch sites. Uh, and also, uh, recently, uh, Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin showed a video talking about the BE-4, which uses 3D printed parts uh, in many aspects of the engine, which is very similar to what SpaceX pioneered uh, with their engines, uh, specifically the Super Draco. Um, one question about New Glenn for you. How does it compare to Falcon 9 or Falcon Heavy in terms of payload capacity? So, uh, New Glenn has, it's a, it's a heavy orbital class booster. Uh, the two-stage variant has a 35,000 kilogram to low Earth orbit capacity, so more than the Falcon 9 full thrust, which is the current model SpaceX flies, but not as much as the Falcon Heavy. And then there is a 70,000 kilogram, that's with the third stage, that third Hydrolox stage, um, which would put it slightly above Falcon Heavy if I... They keep changing the numbers in Falcon Heavy, so... Well, what about other current heavy lifter rockets? Oh, it's way more than Delta IV Heavy. So, New Glenn, um, the two-stage has a 35,000 kilogram payload to low Earth orbit, uh, with the second stage, or the, the three-stage version having up to 70,000 kilograms to low Earth orbit. So that puts it slightly above the current Falcon 9 full thrust um, and the third, the three-stage model uh, slightly above the Falcon Heavy. Um, the three-stage model is also on par with the Block 1 of SLS, uh, but obviously with Block 1B uh, being the second flight of SLS, we'll have a much greater capacity over there. So it is solidly in the heavy lifter category, uh, which is great for putting up, you know, new Bigelow uh, orbital modules or sending science probes or other um, kind of missions like that. Also one thing to keep in mind is with the th third stage of New Glenn being Hydrolox that also not only increases the raw low earth orbit payload performance but it for interplanetary missions beyond low earth orbit uh, it actually has greater gains in that as well due to that efficiency. Uh, so it's not a pure um, ratio between those things. So the last mission from that was launched in 2016 that um, we'd like to talk about was ExoMars, Trace Gas Orbiter, and the Schiaparelli Lander. So TJ, can you explain uh, the journey of ExoMars from Earth to Mars? Okay, so ExoMars is a, an ESA mission uh, that launched March 14th of 2016. Uh, and that launched on a Proton from ILS, and it arrived in Martian orbit on October 19th. And so this is a two-part mission. There's a uh, Mars orbiter that will uh, enter orbit around Mars and take readings of the atmosphere of, of Mars, trying to understand, obviously, those trace gases. So they have a, a bulk CO2 atmosphere, but there are other uh, gases that are in fractional percents of that atmosphere, trying to better understand uh, that composition via spectroscopy. Uh, but the main um, event of the mission was the Schiaparelli, Schiaparelli? Schiaparelli. Schiaparelli uh, lander, uh, which was supposed to uh, 
use parachutes to slow its descent uh, onto Mars, and then use rocket engines to gently land itself on the Martian surface. Uh, and then, Phil, if you want to talk about the things about the lander things, yeah, yeah. So this is this is really interesting to me. Um, well, first of all, the point of the Schiaparelli lander was to test a landing system for future Mars lander missions. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot like other things that happened in 2016, it wasn't a complete success, right? So the ideal case would be, be uh, for the Schiaparelli lander to re-enter or through the, ap- the, through the Martian atmosphere, use a heat shield, slow its descent a little bit, then um, release a parachute to slow it even more. But since the Martian atmosphere is very thin, um, it would come to land with... Uh, rocket engines that would burn uh, before it hit the ground and it would make a soft landing. That was the ideal case. Unfortunately, um, what actually happened is now a crater on the surface of Mars. So what went wrong? The Schiaparelli lander has, it has an IMU, which stands for Inertial Measurement Unit. So it keeps track of its orientation uh, through uh, a system that uses inertia. And much like reaction wheels, IMUs can become saturated, which means that the movement um, can be so violent or move in such a way that the IMU can't keep up. And the data it was feeding to the lander's computer was wrong, frankly. Um, For example, it told the lander that it had negative altitude. So the lander freaked out, said, oh my god, I'm under the ground, I've got to cut my parachute, I've got to burn my rockets because I'm, you know, still going a thousand miles per hour or whatever. Um, And in the meantime, it was actually three kilometers above the surface. So, yeah, it cut its chutes, burned all its fuel, and fell uh, the rest of the way. For 80% of the Schiaparelli's mission lifetime, from the time it... Uh, detached from the main ExoMars trace gas orbiter um, to its uh, eventual crash landing, 80% of the time was going through the atmosphere and uh, reading back data. Um, So we got to observe that much. But the real point of it was to test this landing system. And that part failed. Um, So for future missions, uh, it's... A little bit worrisome because the whole point of the test <laughs> failed so uh, the next one we would send would be you know a multi-billion dollar mission uh and we'd have to use our intellect and intuition and cunning to figure out how to make that uh not happen again how to make the system robust enough that we don't have to worry about saturated imus and and all these errors um, but in the end, uh, science is science. All data is good data, whether it's what we wanted or not. And um, the ESA and, and all the international partners that collaborated on this project will have something to learn from it, and it will make space exploration stronger because of it. So uh, best of luck to them on future Mars missions. And it's a shame we, we couldn't you know, be 100% satisfied with the Schiaparelli lander, but it was still an exciting event in 2016 nonetheless. Drew, do you want to talk about Rosetta? Yeah, Rosetta was a really cool mission that launched several years ago where the ESA sent an orbiter and a lander to observe a comet. 
and we had been getting information about this. There was a, a cute little comic someone made describing the adventures of of these two probes, um, and it the mission ended in 2016. The Rosetta probe landed on the surface, a uh, so-called soft landing on the surface of the comet, where it touched down on September 30th. As the orbiter descended, it was collecting useful data all the way down, so it was taking pictures. The last picture that it sent back was 20 meters above the impact site, so that's some really close-up images of the comet, ones that we haven't had before. And it collected temperature data and uh, atmospheric composition data, not that there's an atmosphere, but what, um, what was outgassing from the comet. So water vapor emissions were recorded from the comet at about two tablespoons per second, leaving the comet. But at the peak season that the probe was able to record, uh, data shows that it was losing the very scientific measurement of two bathtubs worth of water a second. So there's some interesting data on the life cycle of the, uh, the comet there. New Horizons is the last mission we'll talk about for 2016, but even though it flew past Pluto in July of 2015, the reason why we're talking about it in 2016 is because it finally sent the last bit of recorded data back to Earth. So there's a lot of reasons why it took so long. Uh, the first being there were 50, more than 50 gigabits of data, or if you're like me and you're not a computer genius, six and a quarter gigabytes like in your hard drive and it sent all that data at one to four kilobits per second to put that in perspective the average download speed uh, for internet in the u.s is 50 megabits per second so <laughs> um it's like having a really bad internet and your internet service provider is 3.4 billion miles away and it's an actual stat. That's where New Horizons is right now. It's traveled 3.4 billion miles, uh, which is like the time it takes light five hours to travel. But we finally have everything we've seen from Pluto. And um, the there's some amazing pictures. I, I love this mission so much for the pictures. Yeah, the pictures from New Horizons are awesome. That first one of all of Pluto in color there's the, the splotch on the side of it that a lot of people said looks like a heart. I don't know what you guys first saw, but I thought it looked like the head of Disney's Pluto dog. Yeah, I, I didn't see the heart until um, until that cartoon came out where it looked like somebody drew on Pluto, like hugging a heart and saying, like, we love you. <laughs> um, my personal favorite picture is the silhouette from behind Pluto um, where you can see just a, a ring of atmosphere. Uh, that's just incredible to me. And it doesn't even look like Pluto has an atmosphere at all. But when you go past it, it's just this beautiful, oh my god. <laughs> so that's all we had for 2016. But looking forward to 2017. TJ, what are you looking forward to? So, uh, in 2017, there's a lot of exciting things planned uh, that we will be covering in more detail as they approach uh, some of uh, my favorite things I'm looking forward to is all the SpaceX-related things that are happening this year. Falcon Heavy is theoretically scheduled to launch in the second quarter of 2017. Now, for those of you who have been following Falcon Heavy for uh, the, the time, 
uh, that has been planned. Uh, it was originally supposed to launch in 2013, um, and it has been pushed back many, many, many times, and is usually perpetually uh, six months away. But there is a lot of good evidence to kind of show that we're getting to that point. Uh, there is an application uh, with the FAA to build a second landing pad uh, to recover the two side boosters for Falcon Heavy at Cape Canaveral. Uh, there is the full thrust version of Falcon 9 has been operational and is going to be forming the side cores and central cores of Falcon Heavy. Um, and SpaceX has returned to flight at the beginning of this year because uh, it was one of the big delays from the 2016 date was uh, the Amos 6 explosion. So uh, if there's any hope that a Falcon Heavy date of six months in the future is actually going to hold, uh, this would be the one. So here's hoping that we, we get it before Christmas. Um, and that's going to be a demo flight uh, without a paying customer. So they're going to either have a boilerplate uh, payload or SpaceX might make something fun up like a wheel of cheese or something else. Um, yeah, and so that is the big SpaceX uh, event of the year. Also, uh, reusing uh, flown SpaceX uh, Falcon 9. Uh, we don't have a firm confirmation on that, but it looks, it could be uh, SES-10. Um, SES has shown interest in being the first reused customer, uh, and they just tested the core stage that was going to fly on that. I don't remember the name, but it was on Instagram, and so it, it's happening. That's happening. So we'll we'll figure that out. Uh, another big thing for 2017 is commercial crew. Uh, this is between SpaceX and Boeing to get their capsules ready to launch and uh, return America into a human spacefaring um, organization. Uh, the space shuttle retired in 2011, and we've had a kind of capability gap from the end of the space shuttle in 2011, and currently 2017. Hopefully, that gets resolved this year or in 2018. Uh, the big news recently was that Boeing unveiled their Boeing Blue uh, flight suits. Uh, so these are kind of their next generation flight suits. They have zippers and touch capacitive gloves and kind of are more maneuverable, more comfortable for astronauts. And so that kind of puts uh, SpaceX on the docket. Uh, we've had reports that their uh, suits have been done and like qualified uh, by NASA. They just haven't been publicly released. Uh, so it's very likely we're going to get another kind of Dragon 2 unveil. It's going to be a big flashy show and, and whatnot uh, of these spacesuits soon. Um, and so that kind of puts uh, SpaceX on the spot for that. Uh, and there's a lot of anticipation because Elon Musk uh, hired the uh, costume designer who developed the Iron Man armor suit um, to make these spacesuits look badass uh, as kind of their design goal. Uh, so hopefully they live up to the hype uh, and they all, there's something that's cool, stylish, but also functional and keeps the astronauts safe. Uh, then going into just gen generic commercial crew, uh, there's lots of things that are progressing. Yeah, NASA has a NASA has a calendar of milestones um, for Boeing and SpaceX. Um, as part of the commercial crew program, um, both providers are, you know, they're competing, but in order to get NASA's, you know, sign off, 
they have to do certain tests and reviews and certifications um, along the way. And NASA has a calendar that shows um, things like pad abort tests, in-flight abort tests, and so on. Um, and there's a, quite a few things lined up for 2017. Yeah, some of the, the kind of interesting things is SpaceX, uh, there was rumors of an in-flight abort test uh, using either the old uh, reusable kind of test core that they used before to refine landings. Uh, that has been changed. They're actually going to do the unmanned uh, test mission with Dragon 2, uh, recover that, and then do an in-flight abort on a full Falcon 9 uh, launch uh, with that reused capsule. And then that will be their last kind of milestone before a manned test. Um, so that's kind of it's interesting, and that's kind of packed in towards the end of this year. We anticipate the uncrewed test being kind of September to December uh, timeline, uh, and then hopefully an in-flight abort test quickly after that. Uh, and so hopefully a early 2018 manned mission uh, with SpaceX. Uh, it's also going to be interesting that uh, Pad 39A, or Launch Complex 39A, uh, was supposed to be the commercial crew pad um, for SpaceX uh, because of Amos 6 and SLC 40 being damaged. It's now the main launch pad uh, for SpaceX. And one of the critical things is they need a crew tower to load crew into the Dragon uh, well before launch. And so... Uh, 39A has a the space shuttle tower uh, still uh, on the platform, as so they just have to build the arm, the crew arm they could walk out onto. Um, but now there's kind of a, a little conflict where if they're launching every two weeks, three weeks uh, from 39A to support their manifest, which they kind of have to do to hit their targets this year, there has to, they have to find time to install this this crew arm. Uh, so that kind of puts kind of pressure on getting SLC-40 back up so they can shift the non-NASA, non-crew launches to SLC-40 for a bit, finish the pad modifications, and then actually get crew launching um, out of this uh, pad again. Yeah. One interesting thing looking at this this NASA calendar, um, in, in my view, is it makes apparent the different approaches to spacecraft development between a company like Boeing who does, um, you know, traditionally a lot of things um, were reliant on heritage, where SpaceX is a lot more, a lot less risk averse, and you can see that in how they've structured their tests and certifications. Where Boeing um, seems to have a lot of design reviews and simulations uh, out front, and um, once they have a complete, uh, robust vehicle, uh, they plan to test it and um, certify it, kind of toward the end where you know last year or the year before um we saw the pad abort test for spacex which you know we're seeing this test as we build and design and do them together have um the tests inform our design before it's quite finished uh spacex has been doing that for a long time we've seen that with the falcon 9 um, it's just a totally different approach, in my opinion, and we'll see which one pays off. Um, they both have trade-offs, and it'll be really exciting to follow this as as it progresses. Yeah, exactly. And if you if 
you are keeping score of these milestones over the kind of the life of this program. Boeing had a lot of these checked off early on because they did a lot of that design. And these both these companies were able to come up with their own milestones that got approved by NASA. They went with, you know, design and simulation and that kind of stuff. And they're just now getting around to building a structural test article. Uh, while SpaceX, they've had Dragon 1, they're modifying that design. And it is a very extensive modification but they've had the Padabort kind of uh, test article, which was not a full Dragon 2, um, I've been told. Uh, they had that launch last year, and they've had um, the Dragonfly test article as well for propulsive landings, uh, and they're now kind of working on the first three of, of actually going to be flown Dragons. Um, so it's a, it's a different kind of pace Obviously, you know, NASA is really big on safety and they want to make sure that before humans, uh, astronauts actually get into these vehicles, they've been tested. So if you actually look at what, you know, tests each company is going to have to check off before they fly, they're both going to be like very similar, if not identical. Uh, it's just been that kind of pacing and organizing that suits their different engineering styles. All right, let's talk about the last thing. Um, in 2017, uh, last mission that we'd like to, to discuss. Drew, take it away. So this is the Google-sponsored Lunar X Prize, which has me excited because it's robots going to the moon and doing some exploration, which I think is really cool. So there are five teams that have been selected, and most of them will be launching in the second half or late uh calendars uh, 2017. They're launching on Falcon 9, PSLV, Electron, uh, and the Neptune 8, which I don't know, have either of you heard of the Neptune 8 before? I haven't heard of Net Neptune 8 before. Um, I don't think Electron has flown yet either, so, so it'll be interesting. Electron is flying very, very soon. It's flying in like February. We haven't talked about Electron. They have a lot of flights lined up, and it's going to be awesome. I'm excited. Well, this, this XPRIZE competition is a Google-funded uh, event where there's $30 million up for grabs, $20 million to the first place prize, uh, and then 5 and 4 for the, the second and third place. But these are missions to the moon where a team has to design a, a probe that will move across the lunar surface. So it has to land, travel at least 500 meters, and send back high-definition video and pictures from the lunar surface. So this is just something to inspire people to get into a, uh, space exploration. It should hopefully lower the cost uh, by diversifying who's working on space exploration. And um, it, it also has some subsets for high school, middle school, and college students uh, related tasks that they can be working on to explore the space industry. And I think it's just an inspirational thing. The science that we get from it may not be nearly as impressive as what we're getting from these larger missions like Juno or New Horizons, but it's something cool that is being privately funded but open to the public to compete in. So I think it's something that's really cool. Yeah, and and it doesn't limit uh, going to the moon to 
the NASA's and ESA's of, of the world, you know, or, or even to uh, the SpaceX's and, and things like that. It's um, a lot of the launch providers are also kind of the little guy in the industry. Um, and so I, I really hope that this privatization um, kind of pushes the envelope and, and challenges old ideas, um, but also provides a platform for really good new ideas to shine. All right, so let's wrap up the episode with what we expect to have from the podcast itself in 2017. Uh, first of all, we're going to be trying out new formats. We're going to be getting back into discussions like this one. Um, and we also are really, really looking forward to um, getting more interviews with some industry experts and scientists on the show. Um, and we're working really hard to maintain a weekly release schedule. Uh, that's really important to us that we stay in touch with our listeners, with you guys, and um, that we can stay current with the things going on in the space industry. So, um, TJ and Drew, is there anything that you're really hoping to get out of 2017 for SpexCast? I'm just hoping to have some more really interesting discussion with discussions with you guys and uh, some exciting interviews. Yeah, me as well. We had a lot of really, really awesome interviews towards the end of the year. I think we had like six consecutive interviews, um, which is really awesome. Uh, but obviously, we don't, we can't find an interview for every week in a year. So we're, we're going to be doing some discussions. Uh, and as Phil mentioned, trying to get that weekly schedule, we're not going to be um, perfect with that. Obviously, things happen, and you know we're not all in the same place. Um, but we're going to try to hit kind of every Wednesday, um, and one of those things we're looking into is doing kind of a, a live show or a less scripted, less edited show where we can kind of sit and talk about the news of the week in space, of kind of what launches are coming up, what missions are happening, some space history, um, kind of compile all that into like a quick, not very edited show so we can kind of push those out more quickly uh, instead of doing a topic-based show where we do a lot of research and kind of do a recording and editing and that kind of stuff. Yeah, hopefully we can we can have those uh, research episodes every once in a while because those do take time. Um, but also space is cool and we all love it. So talking about it is, is definitely something I look forward to. Uh, but the bottom line comes basically down to what uh, our listeners want. So, you know, we want to make sure you guys are engaged and interested in what we're talking about because it's kind of what keeps us going through all this. You can also uh, rate us on iTunes or Google Music or your podcast service of choice. Also, if there is a podcast service that you use that we are not on, let us know and we can incorporate support for that. Uh, we had a, a listener uh, email us talking about how he wasn't getting uh, the downloads automatically anymore. Uh, and so we worked with our hosting provider on the back end to resolve that issue. So uh, let us know if there's any way we can make uh, it easier for you to hear our content. Uh, you can get in touch with us at RITSpecs on Twitter. Send us an email at specscast at gmail.com or check us out on uh, Facebook. We respond to our messages as well. That's facebook.com slash RIT specs. 
and our music is provided by Nelson Scott. Thanks for listening to SpecsCast. We'll see you next week.